Hello and welcome to Global Railway Review's first ever podcast. My name is Craig Waters, editor of Global Railway Review and your host today. In case this is your first time interacting with Global Railway Review, we are the leading source of information for the international rail industry, covering topics including rolling stock, signalling, infrastructure, the passenger, the workforce, safety and security, sustainability, freight, digitalisation and regulation and legislation. We have both a printed and digital bi-monthly magazine, which if you don't already, then please subscribe to for free, and a website that features online-only, in-depth articles, opinion pieces, interviews, webinars and more, which is updated daily. To add to our portfolio of how our subscribers can digest our content, we have decided to launch a series of Global Railway Reviews podcasts, where we will be speaking to rail experts and leading industry figures to discuss projects, challenges and the future trends that will continue to shape the railway sector. Today joining me for our first ever episode is Michael Robson, an international railway and transport consultant. Okay, Michael, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, It would be great if we could get an introduction from you to start with so that our listeners can understand who you are with some background of your rail career so far and what you're up to. Okay, thanks, Greg. Um, Well, I started my railway career selling tickets at a station called Gidia Park, and if you want to be correct, Gidia Park and Squirrels Heath on the Great Eastern Main Line, and ended my time as Secretary General of the European Rail Infrastructure Managers, the EIM, in Brussels. My career, I guess, was a, a classic railway career, rising through the various grades, through supervisory grades, through area management, uh, into divisional management. And my last job before privatisation was as commercial manager for the Southeastern Division of Network Southeast. When privatisation came around, I decided to go back to my roots and became an operator again and joined RailTrack as part of the operational planning team looking after the national planning of engineering work across the network. And it's strange how things happen, but uh, when I was area manager at Ashford, I was involved in the building of the Channel Tunnel, so needed to learn French. And when I moved into operational planning, although I was in engineering works, they were looking for somebody who could speak French to go to the international timetable conferences. So I ended up becoming involved in international timetabling and from there went to be the head of uh, European Affairs for Network Rail. And then I spent four and a bit years on secondment from Network Rail as Secretary General of the European Rail Infrastructure Managers in Brussels. And when I finished there after my 40 years, um, a number of people asked me if I would do things, so I set up my own consultancy, and that's what I'm still doing today. Fantastic, excellent. So um, it's clear that you've had um, quite a, a varied career, which is fantastic, and you must have um, seen a lot during your time um, in the industry so far. And as we all know, I think that the rail industry is under pressure, it remains under pressure to improve network performance and resolve capacity issues, which I think is true for all countries. Um, What are your thoughts on how far the industry has come when monitoring the health of the infrastructure is concerned? What what kinds of um, technology do you think is is yielding some good results and and really helping the industry? Well, I think that was one thing which happened when the industry was uh, was privatised in the UK, certainly. And a similar thing was happening throughout Europe. And the infrastructure managers then had their own budget, so to speak, to 
look at improving their network. It wasn't a case of do we invest in new trains or for the train operating companies or, or do we invest in track renewals. If you were an integrated company, you could make those trade-offs. But when you were an infrastructure manager, you were looking to say, how can I improve my infrastructure to reduce my costs and, as you quite rightly say, improve capacity? So RailTrack and Network Rail started looking at that. And measurement trains have been around for a long time. I mean, Dr. Yellow in, in Japan is probably the most well-known, which led to the new measurement train or the network measurement train coming into the UK. And that started giving regular updates on the condition of the infrastructure. And as you probably know, and your listeners probably know, the uh, NMT runs around the network as a timetable train. And that is actually quite unique to my uh, experience in Europe. So it's continually collecting data on the on the state of the infrastructure. And the advance from that was to then use some of the uh, equipment for gathering data to fit it onto trains which were running around the network. Other infrastructure managers uh, either use dedicated trains or they use uh, engineering plants with the equipment on. But possibly some of the, the biggest things which have happened uh, is in using uh, GPR, ground penetrating radar, as a way of understanding how the ballasts and the formations are performing, which gives you a, a snapshot uh, once a week in some cases, or how many other times you want to run the train, as to how your track uh, is performing in different conditions. But it can also be used a number of years out to assess how your track is looking in terms of track renewals. And this is where money can start to be saved. Because if you use something like ground penetrating uh, radar to continually survey your network, and when you come to do track renewals, the cost of sort of checking what the the under track uh, formation is like, you would do that in the past by uh, drilling or digging. And that would cost you somewhere around £12,000 per per mile to do. If you use GPR with targeted drilling down, it comes down to about £1,300 per kilometre, which is a huge saving in terms of, of costs, and infrastructure managers need to reduce their costs. The other thing which uh, has worked very well is uh, LIDAR, which is a mapping system, so you can map your network and you can have, well, virtual reality, I suppose is the word to use, of your network available to everybody so you can see what things are like. And those two things, along with drones, helicopters, etc., have done wonders in bringing data and useful data to infrastructure managers. And the other bit, because obviously you can't run trains uh, everywhere, is by fitting uh, sensors to important pieces of pieces of kit, such as points, level crossings, strain gauges on bridges, and moving more towards the phrase predict and prevent rather than find and fix. But also, in terms of uh, bridges with strain gauges, you're probably looking at a risk-based approach rather than a, a specific uh, standards and, and interval approach. And in some cases, this style of approach can increase the life of uh, lifespans of structures quite considerably. The area where I think 
we could still do better is in that latter area of sensors where we still as an industry tend to be very specific about the type of sensors we want uh, and we specify sensors which cost rather a lot of money and some work was done by the uh, national technical university of norway in just using off-the-shelf sensors and comparing them to ones that have been specified by BNNO and the cost difference between these two sets of sensors was a factor of about 10. So again, uh, they performed perfectly satisfactorily, they were safe, they gave the right data, they were secure, uh, worked very well and lowered the costs without lowering the, the quality. So I think progress has been made with the new technology. I think we can still go further and I think we have to get uh, better at implementing other people's ideas and getting rid of the not invented here syndrome, which I have to say applies to all real, railways across Europe. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And um, you, you were mentioning there some costings and some cost figures of, of um, lots of that good equipment that's being implemented. Um, but I think investment is, of course, necessary and, and really important to be able to bring about change within the industry, um, especially when it comes to harnessing all the, the new technology and investing in innovative systems and solutions. Um, but I think there's still lots of questions about how these investments are justified, um, especially when funding and the costs of improving the railway seems to always be um, in, in the spotlight. What are your views on, on, on that? Uh, I think you did right. Um, I think it's very important for infrastructure managers to be able to prepare a good business case and a robust business case not sticking the finger in the air and thinking, well, if we do this, we might get this, this, this. You have to be able to demonstrate, not necessarily that you are going to save staff, uh, although that is one of the issues sometimes, but now more it is, it's about you being able to deliver what the network is being asked of it. So on the assumption that your funder, normally the government or the region, has been very clear about what the system needs to deliver, then you need to put together some asset management plans with options to support the delivery of whatever that strategy is. And in those options, you need to be very clear. If we invest in X, we can renew more track at this price and deliver more capacity. If we don't, then the, the cost per uh, kilometre or mile of track goes up. Um, we perhaps need longer time to do the work. Therefore, we reduce capacity. Therefore, as is the case in some parts of the country now, we end up with buses on a, on a Saturday or Sunday, which is not what the customer wants. Going back to network rail days, Robin Gisby, uh, when he was the director of operations, vision was for a seven-day railway. Sadly, we haven't got a seven-day railway yet, and we need to work very hard at it. The other thing which I think is important, and it is part of this business case, is if you are renewing a set of points on a main line, certainly, but on certain secondary routes as well, to me, it is inconceivable that you would not be able to put together a business case to put condition monitoring in as you put those points in, so that you know exactly what is happening to them and you can improve your maintenance performance and reduce delays but you have to be have done the work to show what the delays were beforehand so you need a performance monitoring system which fortunately the uk has 
The other thing which I think we have to get still this message out, um, the most part of our railway were built in the Victorian times, so in the 19th century. Train speeds, maybe 60 miles an hour. Turnout speeds, maybe 10 or 20 miles an hour. When we're now running at speeds of 125 miles an hour, turnout speeds of 10 or 20 miles an hour are just not sustainable. So and I noticed coming back on the East Coast, uh, approaching uh, Berwick in the up direction, the entrance to the loop immediately north of Berwick Station is 10 miles an hour. And that's on the East Coast main line where we are trying to run currently three uh, and moving up to uh, five high-speed trains uh, an hour and intermingling it with freight trains. But my guess is to do the, the work to demonstrate the additional capacity that one would gain by increasing the speed limit of those turnouts has not yet been done. And the other point I think is um, we can deliver projects on time and on budget, HS1 being the classic example. When we do that, we get some good press. People have confidence that we can do it. We've put a business case together. On the other hand, Ashford Spurs at Ashford Station, the new Eurostar trains cannot call at uh, Ashford because the signaling is not compliant with the new trains. So money was obtained to uh, improve the signaling, which was done, tested, but then after three trains ran over, they found there were problems between the trains and the signaling. And 18 months later, we are still waiting for the new Eurostar trains to stop at Ashford. So people's confidence in the industry being able to deliver in that case has gone down. So we have to work very hard at putting a good business case together, showing improvements in uh, capacity or reduction in delays and better uh, life cycle costs for the uh, product that we're putting in. And only that way, do I believe, will we gain the confidence of the funders, whether they be government or the, the councils or whoever is funding, to deliver. And if real is to achieve its potential of the uh, sustainable mode of transport in the future, attracting more passengers and more freight, we must demonstrate that we can do this. Yeah, so as you say, the, the industry has come um, quite far in, in some respects, but but there does still need to be um, more um, concentration in, in certain areas to, to move forward. Um, so for almost four years, you was the Secretary General of the European Rail Infrastructure Managers. During your time there, what would you say were the main challenges um, that you saw coming from European infrastructure managers? And do you see them um, having done anything different now? Or are they doing anything different now? How far, have they, how far have they come in what they're doing? Are some countries better at implementing projects and ideas better than others? Um, good question, Craig. Um... When I moved to the uh, to the IM, they were still infrastructure managers, was still a relatively new concept. Uh, and the first thing they were doing was was fighting with this idea that infrastructure managers' boundaries stop at the end of their country. So if you like, you were one piece in a jigsaw. And if you want to encourage international long distance freight traffic, as an example, then you really need to understand how the next piece of the jigsaw fits. Uh, and it was Hubert de Menil from uh, Réseau Faire de France who explained this very well using his jigsaw analogy, that you actually, the, the bits of the jigsaw need to join up. 
and eventually his his thoughts led to the creation of the uh, rail freight corridors which are now across Europe so very much involved about how you can coordinate uh, work uh, capacity etc along a corridor to make the journey for international freight and passenger trains much much better and remove barriers uh, because uh, national boundaries are still major barriers at times. The other thing which we were very much involved in and started a working group in was about asset management because asset management was a common thing in other industries but not in the real industry and by understanding your assets and what you're looking to get them to perform and deliver you can then start to understand your costs better and that's part of the way of building up your business uh, cases uh, for the future and in part of the uh, asset management was obviously this change from paper records to electronic records and ultimately uh, the start of digitalization the problems that railways face all over Europe are actually the same it's just whether they're one two three four or five or five four three two or one in terms of priority uh, and transferring lessons from one to the other was important and still is uh, very very important because there are uh, very good ideas whether it's about how you allocate capacity or about how you do work uh, and talking to each other to get those messages across was really very very important going back if i may to the uh, the issue of uh, the jigsaw and the corridors it's also very important because if you are uh, an infrastructure manager in a country and you earn most of your revenue from uh, international cross-border traffic rather than traffic generated in your own country and I would give Austria as, a, as the example here OBB really wants to improve its uh, international routes because that's where it makes its money but they may not necessarily be the same routes that the Austrian government wants to see improved to improve passenger services and freight traffic within the country. So infrastructure managers are having to uh, work hard to influence their own political uh, masters to make sure that international traffic is given the, the right priority uh, it deserves in these cases. Perhaps the biggest issue that was tackling us all was uh, interoperability and you know, our listeners will be aware that for many years the the UIC in Paris issued uh, fiches and that is how uh, interoperability across Europe worked standardized ways for um, numbering wagons coaches what you do at borders etc but this was all done uh, by the incumbent or, or nationalized railways and in a market that was looking to liberalize it was necessary to do something different and so the European uh, Railway Agency or as it's now called the European Union Agency for Rail although everybody still calls it the ERA the European Railway Agency was set up uh, and its aim was to improve safety and interoperability across Europe to enable uh, the growth in rail traffic uh, and to reduce costs and so it set about um, producing uh, technical uh, specifications of interoperability TSIs and 
these were to, or are to enable the railway to move more seamlessly across Europe and reduce costs by making procurement of systems simple. The one that people always think about is uh, ETCS, the signalling system. And as Secretary General of the EIM, the EIM was the body responsible for nominating railway experts to serve on the working groups which were drafting all of these uh, TSIs. And so one of my uh, key roles with my team was ensuring that we were getting the right people onto these working groups and monitoring the progress of them that, so they weren't delivering things which were less detrimental to the infrastructure managers or suggesting solutions which were the perfect solution but the cost would never be, would never be covered because uh, they were so expensive. And probably last but by no means least during my time there, um, I saw four railway packages come through the, uh, the legislative process. Uh, railway package one, two, three and four and the recast of the first railway package. So there was a lot of work to do in terms of understanding uh, the implications of these uh, pieces of uh, proposed legislation, which obviously eventually became legislation, and working with the national railways to try and ensure that the the views of the national railways were put over in a in a positive way, which would help the development uh, and enlargement of the network, uh, culminating in the in the goals of getting more business uh, on rail. 30% um, of uh, passenger traffic over 300 kilometres and 30% of freight traffic over 300 kilometres by uh, 2030. Uh, and just to put that in context, currently there's a somewhere between about 16 and 18% of freight traffic in those distances uh, on rail. So that has virtually got to double within the next 10 years, which will be a huge challenge. And we'll need all the um, intelligence, ability, uh, new solutions, which we can deliver to improve uh, the capacity and performance of the network. And that's what was uh, taxing our minds in uh, in Brussels. Good. That's um, that's interesting to know. And um, I just wanted to come back to the issue of, of costs um, that we were uh, talking about earlier um, and how important it is for costs to, um, quite rightly so, be, be kept under control. Um, what do you think are the best ways for infrastructure managers to carry out um, work on, on their infrastructure um, in a cost efficient way? Because basically the work that they carry out has got to ultimately benefit uh, the infrastructure managers themselves, but also the end customer. What are your views on that? Um, I think it's it's important to to go back to something I said at the, the start of this, is about asset management. To know your assets and what you're asking them to deliver and perform, and then to plan your work. Um, if I go back to my time as a uh, National Access Manager for Engineering Planning, there was a thing called T-26. So 26 weeks before you had any disruptive work, it had to be planned and the possessions agreed and the alternative train services put in place. I think at the moment we're at about T minus 10. Now that's all about confidence in planning and having the skills to plan in advance and the funding. There should be no problem with the funding. So I can only assume it's about the skills in planning and the negotiating which goes on between the train operators and the infrastructure managers. 
but we need as part of that process as well to have appropriate alternative routes for trains, whether they be passenger or freight. And by modes uh, would provide this in the short term on some routes, but uh, short sections of electrification uh, and also gauge clearance on other routes would help for freight traffic. But the work needs to be planned properly and needs to use the appropriate technology and appropriate resources. As an example, for a long time, we stopped ballast cleaning. It went out of vogue. But it is actually a very effective way of doing a midlife refurbishment of uh, track. Now, we need to be able to ballast clean with one line open. So we need to go back and use uh, single line working or bi-directional signaling. I have to say a single line working appears to have uh, fallen out of fashion, but all customers, whether they be passenger or freight, would tell you that the passengers don't like traveling on buses and the freight trains don't like being left in the sidings for hours and hours and hours whilst the work is going on. So using the appropriate means of getting around the work is also important. And last, but by no means least, is I talked about using appropriate technology and appropriate resources. Uh, network Rail at long last has realized that it is over tamping parts of its network uh, and taking needless uh, possession. So using technology, uh, digitalization, etc., so that we know where we are doing the work, doing the appropriate work in a timely manner and ensuring that we are using the kit which we have across the network to deliver the benefits to the customer is most important. And if I go back to Simbids as an example, Simbids applies on the East Coast mainline north of Newcastle and it operates every Sunday night, Monday morning. Not a problem. Train service is planned around it. I seem to recall recently that we decided we could no longer operate Simbids simplified bidirectional signaling on the Brighton main line at night because it was too difficult and so we stopped running the services. That to me is not customer focused and the technology is there, it's possible to use it, we should get on and do it. Yeah, that's that's. Um, I, I completely agree with that. The um, uh, the technology is there. Um, the industry just needs to to move forward with everything. And and I think take the scenario that you know once the infrastructure is is running as it should, um, and that it's being um, monitored using all this great um, new technology, that everything is running cost efficiently. Um, I think many people would still agree that there are still issues of capacity management. What are your views in um, how the industry still needs to to move forward with managing capacity on 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 the networks? Um, I think if, if I if I start, I mean, I spent most of my career on the on the eastern side of the country, not the western side of the country. And the the east coast has always had a philosophy of doing small schemes that gradually improve things, and then putting all the schemes together on the timetable and giving you either more capacity or journey time reduction. I think we have to look at these small schemes across the network. Uh, admittedly, there are times that you have to do something major, such as ready remodeling or, or Great Western electrification. But a lot of the time, you can gain increments in uh, capacity uh, and performance by doing small targeted schemes. I think we need to remember uh, to do that. Obviously, there needs to be a business case to do them. Targeted uh, electrification of little core infill uh, routes 
which would give you the ability to carry out diversions. Uh, the speed of turnouts, which we've already touched on, diversionary routes we've touched on. But one thing which has always been uh, a hobby horse of mine is about the, the regulation of, of trains and in particular freight trains. And again, if we go back you know, to the Victorian times and the speed of them all, we actually go back into the 1970s when freight trains were running about 25, 35 miles an hour uh, and the odd freight liner train was running around the network. We're now running freight trains 60 and, and more regularly 75 miles an hour across the network. But we still insist on looping them out of the way uh, on lines which are not running at uh, full capacity or with high-speed trains to let passenger trains pass. My view is quite clear. If you have a 75-mile-an-hour running Freightliner train, it's a wet Wednesday night in the middle of November, 9 o'clock at night, and you have a single coach uh, regional railways train running around the network with one or two people on. The right thing to do is not to trunk the freight train into a loop. Uh, it's actually to let the freight train run and retime your passenger train. So I think we need to look at capacity. If I go back to my example of uh, Berwick and 10 mile an hour entrance into the loop, we need to look at what the actual loss of capacity is by slowing down this 75 mile an hour freightliner train to 10 miles an hour to go into a loop for some other train to pass. And what the actual delay would be if we let that freightliner train keep running at 75 miles an hour and how much extra capacity you could drive by doing that, and also by flighting trains like that, one behind the other. So I think there is work we can do. Um, and I think the existing signaling systems support improvements in capacities if they are used effectively. Remember that a lot of the old signaling uh, is probably about 30 years old now, but it still has calling on signals on it, which are very seldom used. Excellent, thank you. Um, so you're going to be participating in Global Railway Review's uh, forthcoming Digital Rail Revolution Conference, which is taking place in London on the 7th of November, which we're really excited about. Um, and just for our listeners who might not know, um, as the name suggests, Digital Rail Revolution Conference will address all matters that are impacting the rail industry when it comes to using innovative technology and new digital solutions. So I just wanted to get your views on um, what you you think about this modern era of digitalization? Um, how have you seen the industry change? Um, has it changed for the better? And what do you think of the future of RAL? What do you think it will look like, especially with all these modern digital solutions that the industry is, is starting to um, to take on board? Uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. I think it's, it's a great challenge. Um, I've worked with a number of European projects which have been looking at how to use the, the new technology. Uh, and the Digital uh, Rail Revolution Conference, I hope, will be an opportunity for me to see and learn a bit more. But artificial intelligence and machine learning can definitely help managers by focusing on the issues where they need to use their managerial stroke engineering judgment to resolve something, allowing artificial intelligence and machine learning to deal with a lot of the mundane issues which can be processed by the, by the system. And that, to me, is great. And that moves us towards what we talked about much earlier, predict and prevent rather than find and fix, so improving the performance of the network. 
And I believe and I hope that at the conference we will actually see some products which are available off the shelf, which the railways can use, in other words, certain things will be showcased, which it can use and implement quickly without having to go through huge safety uh, cycles because that's part of the benefit we need to get in and use them. I mean, for instance, I mean, drones can uh, live stream uh, information about the network back to a central point where you can be looking at it and seeing what's going on. And if you take the analogy of the person who used to be walking along the track, he used to uh, check the track to look up the embankment, etc. but very seldom went to the top of the embankment to look what was happening in the field. And that's where a lot of our problems uh, occur actually just off railway property where there's a buildup of water or some work going on which causes uh, ground conditions to change. Drones are a good way of doing that uh, and the technology can use that. You can use AI technology to be comparing photos etc. But importantly we need to specify what we want the technology to do not how it should do it and coming back to an earlier point of mine we need to make sure that we are using as many off-the-shelf off systems as it's possible uh, to use. And perhaps my, my last point on this subject is that skill sets are bound to change in the rail industry. And young people who have technology skills, I think, will be in much greater demand. But we need to ensure that the engineering and management skills are not lost as well. There's still an awful lot in the railway in, in engineers' minds and, and managers' minds, which is exactly that. It's in their minds. The skills are not necessarily being passed on. A lot of things are being written down, but things that are written down tend to be very wordy and, and not necessarily very easy to do. So it's blending the youth and the knowledge they have of how to exploit new technology with the experience of seasoned engineers and managers putting the two together and moving forward and it's exactly the same with new equipment which is coming onto the railway and i've been interested to to follow the the debates which are going on about trains which will drive themselves tests going to happen in france and uh, on the netherlands but i would have thought as an infrastructure manager why aren't we actually having automated tamping machines, lining machines, it's a possession, there's no trains running on that line. Surely that would be an ideal place actually to start thinking about and using uh, automatic trains. So in summary, I'm, I'm really excited about the Digital Rail Revolution Conference. I hope I'm going to see some, some new technology which actually excites me and, and challenges me. Yeah, I, I would uh, completely agree with you on on that answer. I think there's lots of exciting things going on in the industry. So it's um, making sure that um, the industry does what it needs to do to, to move forward and make sure that the railways continue to be, um, you know, one of the, the core modes of transport um, in the future. OK, well, I think that brings us to a close on this first podcast. Michael, thank you um, very much again for joining me today um, and sharing your insights with our new listeners. And I'm sure we'll speak again in the future. Yeah, thank you uh, very much, Craig. It's been enjoyable. And I look forward to seeing you and various other people at the Digital Real Revolution Conference in uh, the beginning of November. Excellent. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, that concludes our first ever episode of Global Railway Reviews podcast. Many thanks to Michael for his time. And just to remind you, like myself and Michael mentioned in this first episode, our Digital Rail Revolution Conference will be taking place in London on the 7th of November 2019. 
This one-day event is bringing together industry experts from infrastructure managers and train operators to explore how the railways must harness modern technology during this important era of digitalisation. So I urge you to book your ticket today and join the industry in London for discussion and networking. You can find the relevant links at globalrailwayreview.com. As we plan to produce more podcasts for our audience in the future, please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next one. This is available on our website, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you normally listen to your podcasts. And please make sure you subscribe to us to receive a free copy of our magazine and join us on our social media channels. Thank you for taking the time to listen today and I look forward to hosting the next one.